0: Okay, uh, first, so let me just welcome all of you. We're really excited to have you here, uh, especially those who have traveled from afar, uh, it looks like it's going to be a very exciting program. Uh, very quick thank you to Michelle for all of the organization. She's done a lot, a lot of the work, probably much more than the study leads have done in the lead up to this. So uh, all of the organization is thanks to Michelle more than, more than us. And uh, we're really happy to welcome Anna Vallen, Associate Professor at University of Gothenburg. Uh, Anna's really one of the world experts of, as it says there, oceanography at the Antarctic margins. Um, She's worked on this in a number of different ways. She's done laboratory experiments some numerical simulations. uh, But most recently, she's been doing a lot of observational work. She's been down uh, in the Amundsen Sea in 2009, 2011, and will be back there next year. So she's going to tell us a little bit about that. And we're also excited to have Anna here. She's also on the Scientific Steering Committee of SUS. For those who don't know SUS, it's the Southern Ocean Observing System, uh, and I'm sure this will come up a lot during the week in our discussion. So thank you, Anna, and thanks for starting us off.
1: Thank you very much. <laughs> is the mic okay? Or no. yep. Good. Thank you very much for asking me to come here uh, in to sunny California. It just turned sour in Sweden when I left, so <laughs> it was very nice. My name is Anna Volin and I'm from the University of Gothenburg, as you said. Uh, and I have tried to squeeze this, uh, it's a very big subject this and I tried very hard to squeeze it into 30 minutes but it was not very easy. So I started off with 120 slides and then I cut off nearly all of them so we'll see what was left. <laughs> so basically I will first talk about uh, what water mass modification goes on at the shelf seas. Uh, and give some examples in TS diagrams. I was told that uh, all of you are not physical oceanographers so I'll just talk briefly about how we work with TS diagrams in physical oceanography. And then I will talk a little bit about mechanisms for uh, cross shelf flows, eddies and buoyancy driven flows. Basically I think you can sum them into and then a little bit about what we know and what we don't know and that's I could have talked about for two hours, I think how much we don't know because there's really very little known about this remote region. And then uh, a little bit, uh, moving a little bit into the zoo's business, maybe what we should focus on measuring, which is what the zoo's work with. Uh, So this is a um, sketch showing the basic water masses in the Southern Ocean. Uh, It's characterized by a very strong uh, wind-driven current called the Antarctic circumpolar current. It's the world's largest current. It's, um, I think it's 15 times stronger than the Gulf Stream. And and that sort of has a signature. That one moves all of these water masses. It goes, it's a so-called barotropic current. So uh, you can see it from the surface way deep into the water. And the water masses are, um, first of all, uh, uh, surface water mass. Uh, They are uh, comparatively fresh to the others. And then in the center, we have a warm water mass called warm circumpolar deep water. Uh, And below that are modified water masses, which are uh, created on the shelf here when uh, the water cools and uh, ice, sea ice freezes, so we get some salt uh, input from brain drainage. Uh, so the, the the densest water around Antarctica is uh, cold and salty, and it's created from ice formation. Um, yeah, and you, if you look at the TS-plot then, so this is temperature here and salinity here, and all these dots are measurements from the Southern Ocean, then nearly all um, Wherever you take, if you're south of sixty degrees, you get some similar profile looking like this. So this is the surface water. Colors here indicate the depth. So this is surface water, and then you have a temperature maximum, and then you have nearly constant temperature and uh, uh, constant salinity, decreasing temperatures. And this water here is uh, very deep, for over four thousand meters. And um, when you're quite close to the shelf break, you have a um, circumpolar deep water that is about 1.8 degrees warm and 34.7 uh, PSU salt. Uh, and then uh, the further north you travel, the, the warmer this water gets and the larger th- this um, bump in the TS diagram. Yeah, and the surface water, at least when you're close to the shelf, is always close to freezing temperature. Uh, and when you work with, in a TS plot, for those who are not oceanographers, uh, straight lines signify mixing between two water masses. So if you take water like this and water like that, And just mix it in a bowl you will have something that ends up somewhere on this line Uh, so in this particular ts diagram you you have surface water circumpolar deep water and mixtures of it and then you have the deeper water masses Uh, and this is uh, the same uh, data but the colors signify oxygen instead so what you can see here is that the water close to the surface has high oxygen, and the circumpolar deep water has low oxygen content. Um, And this is a a picture from Andrew's paper, actually showing the um, uh, Antarctic circumpolar current. The red lines show sort of its average path. Uh, And this picture here shows a snapshot of what it looks like at one Uh, moment. So as you see, it's nothing like whenever you draw averages of it, you get these nice straight lines, but it's nothing like that in reality. You have these uh, whirls and loops and eddies, Uh, but since they are um, uh, variations of it, they disappear when you take a long enough average. You don't see these, but they are very important for um, moving. When you're out here in the deep water, these eddies and loops, they are the main thing, moving water northwards and southwards. The main flow is a a very fast current, round and round. So in order to leave that current, you need these eddies. Um, So if we look at what processes happens on the shelf, Uh, this is a section through the shelf. So this is the deep sea here and here you have the continent with a floating glacier. Uh, so, and, and this is that warm water mass that can sometimes uh, move onto the shelf. And when you're on the shelf here you have a uh, mixing because uh, this water mass moves and that creates uh, whirls in the fluid so that it in itself mixes and you also have tides that move the water back and forth um, so this water gets mixed up into the surface water and that heat leaves the surface water through atmospheric cooling and the freezing of sea ice. Um, and then you have um, at least in some shelf regions you, this water can move all the way into the uh, glaciers so they go beneath the floating glaciers and when are, if the water is warm, it uh, can melt the glacial ice and then it can also refreeze. And uh, I th- we'll talk a little bit more about that and I think that it will be much more in the later talk also. Uh, and then after this interaction, this water leaves uh, the continent again. It can either uh, become light and go up to into the surface water or it can leave as a dense current still if it's still uh, denser than the surface water Um, and if the cooling here is severe enough you can have formation of um, dense water Antarctic dense water which is the densest water in the world oceans Um, and that one is uh, way denser than this circumpolar deep water Uh, so w- I'm there's a, this is a very nice sketch, but I would like to stress again that we know virtually nothing of what goes on there. Um, it, the Southern Ocean, in particular the region that's covered by sea ice, is essentially a blind spot for us. Um, it, it would be like uh, picking 100 grains of sand from a football field, and think that you can understand what goes on at the football field. That sort of a if you compare the amounts of water that we have analysed. Um, and this picture here shows Argo uh, boys, uh, the tracks of Argo boys, And you can see there is spaghetti all over the world. But white areas here in the south. Uh, but uh, we do have remote sensing and that's very good, for example, for sea ice. And these plots are made from remote sensing. So there is approximately 19 million square kilometers of sea ice in winter in Antarctica. And most of it uh, melts in summer. And there has been some uh, quite dramatic changes in sea ice. Uh, In the sea, in the duration, in the season. So in the Ross Sea, the sea ice season has become uh, 57 uh, days longer. And here in the Amundsen Sea, it has become 83 days shorter uh, compared to the um, average in this time period. Uh, and you see the effect of this uh, sea ice freezing. It, again, if we look at a TS plot, this red line here, the surface freezing temperature. And whenever you have dots scattered around this line or lining up along it, that's a signature of that this water has been in contact with the atmosphere and frozen, has been uh, some sea ice freezing taking place. And um, uh, of course, uh, the the first thing that uh, when you have atmospheric cooling is that the water cools. And that would mean just taking a dot here and moving it in straight line and warming in summertime. A lot of our measurements uh, take place in summer, but I think that they are probably biased because of this. And we see quite often uh, lines coming up like this, but that's probably not so representative really for the Southern Ocean. Uh, so if you have really severe cooling and ice freezing you can have this formation of dense water and this example is from the Ross Sea and you see here all these dots scattered and this is um, essentially water that you saw in the previous plots and that has undergone uh, severe cooling and freezing and you see all these lines striving along the, along the freezing point like this. So cooling acts to put it down and freezing in this direction. Uh, And this uh, kind of TS plots you can see in the Ross Sea and in the Weddell Sea where this dense water is formed. Um, And also high oxygen content you see on the color there, red and yellow and uh, pink. So that means it has been in recent contact with the atmosphere. Uh, and the, you have particular, you have strong sea ice formation in polynias. Here is a picture of a polynia where you have wind blowing, pushing the ice away and leaving the water open so that it can lose more heat and, and create more ice. Uh, and here is a satellite photo. They can be very big, these polynias. And you see them often. They start close to the coast and then they grow as summer comes. And uh, so uh, moving on then to what happens to the water when it's below the, the glacial ice. Uh, we know even less there, of course, if it's a blind spot when you have sea ice, it's, uh, I don't know if it even has ice, this spot here. Uh, there are very few measurements. In order to measure here, you need to <coughs> drill holes through the glacier ice or send uh, submarines in and do your measurements. Um, and it, so wi- when warm water comes in here, it melts the ice. And then it can also, when it melts ice, the water becomes colder and colder. And then it can actually refreeze again back onto the glacier. Uh, and that um, wh- that uh, is called marine ice when that happens. And that ice is green compared. So if you see icebergs with marine ice, they are green when they top over. Uh, yeah, so it's very hard to go below here. But you can also look at what comes, what goes into the glacier cavity and what goes out. And that you can do with ordinary ships that sends CTDs and stuff. And moorings are quite good also if you put instruments here and leave them for some years. Um, so this is a um, snapshot of um, if you combine these methods. So this picture shows the first measurements below um, floating glacier. Uh, so wh- what they found when they said, this is done from a submarine, an unmanned submarine. And the first thing that they saw was that the underside of the ice is very regular. And also they found this warm ocean water I- in this cavity and before that, We were not sure if it really was true that it went below. Um. And here is a TS plot, what it looks like when the water has been below glacier ice. Then it's not lined on the surface freezing point, but instead it's lined along a line called the guard line, which is a straight line that So if you take water here and melt glacier ice, two things happen, it becomes colder and it becomes fresher. So if this is corresponding to one kilo of ice, then this heat is exactly uh, the amount of latent heat required to melt this much ice. So this slope is always constant. And you can see um, when when you take water like this and it's lined up, along this line, then you know it has probably been in contact with glacier ice. And that is what has made it cooler and fresher. Um, and oh, in this uh, process, so it gets colder and, and fresher and freshening winds, so to say. So it gets more buoyant in this process. This thing makes the water lighter. So that is how we sort of, the CTDs, CTD measurements are a very large part of what we have to work with when we look at this shelf area. So it's very good that we can use them for many things and analyze. And here's an example from a, a cruise done in 2009. And then we found gray dots are historical data and the color dots are the data we took then. And then we found this. Water, the temperature and salinity are roughly the same, but one striking difference was that it had lined up along the guard line. So then we um, draw the conclusion that this water, even if we weren't, couldn't measure it going in or out of the ice shelf, we could draw that conclusion. Uh, so from this, and, and also here we see that it's close to freezing, so there's been some sea ice freezing in the surface. And using these diagrams, we we can trace the history of the water uh, and know what processes has modified it on the shelf. So I think we do know that fairly well, actually. We wish we had much more CTD data to work with and we wish we had more oxygen, which is a great complement. It's a third parameter that helps us um, uh, to be sure that we draw the right conclusions. but what we don't know so much is the actual processes th- themselves. We only see the result of it. There are very few observations of things going on, like wintertime measurements uh, in Antarctica, when the actual freezing takes place. Uh, and, ooh, is this <coughs> remaining time? Is it? Ah, good. <laughs> um, So, depending on the strength of these atmospheric processes and depending on how much the water mixes on the shelf and how much water it's transported up and down from the shelf. The shelf areas can be sites for deep water production or they can be flooded by warm water uh, that melts the glaciers or a combination of both. And if we look around uh, Antarctica, we have, for example, the Weddell Sea and the Ross Sea. They are typically sites for uh, dense water formation, where sea ice freezing is, um, gives a very uh, strong impression on the water that we see on the shelf and outside the shelf. Um, there is some flow of warmer, uh, very modified versions of circumpolar deep water flowing in towards these ice shelves at the moment. And if we understood what makes the water flow in, we could maybe predict if there's a danger of this, um, uh, an increase in this warm water transport. Um, and in East Antarctica, we have a strong onshore uh, wind ribbon that pushes water into the coast. And that uh, appears to block this region from uh, warm water exchange more or less, it lies there. Uh, occupying the space, so to say. Um, and then there are the Almonds and, and Bellinghausen scenes where you see very warm uh, circumpolar deep water, nearly pure circumpolar deep water that flows towards the high shelves. Uh, and here in this region, there appears to be no strong barriers. Um, Yeah, so if we look at the Filchner-Ronne, for example, you have a um, strong uh, sea ice production. So this water gets very dense and lands on the slope. And periodically this can even block the warmer water from entering. And also you have um, a circulation where you have the modified sea ice, modified version of the water entering the cavity. And so that is much colder than what you see in the Amundsen Sea. Uh, And it can still melt some of this water here, some of the ice here. But when it uh, gets higher up in the water column, the pressure decreases and then the freezing point uh, increases. So then you can actually have refreezing of this ice. So you pick up glacial ice here and put it there. That's when you get the green ice. and from these dots show where there has been drilling holes. So they have put CTDs down through the glacier ice. And uh, I- even from those few holes, you get a very complicated picture of the flow path that the uh, uh, water takes below the ice shelf cavity. And recent results suggest that you have some flow of water here also entering the cavity. And this is modified water going out. Um, But I'm uh, quite convinced that even if it's complicated, it's very important to understand the flow paths the water takes in the cavities and um, why they take those flow paths and if there is a block somewhere and what could happen if that block is removed. Um, it's, It's obvious that when you have a long curly flow path like this, you have uh, more time in contact with the glacial ice also. Um, and this is a transect from the Bellingshausen Sea along the outer shelf all the way into the Ross Sea. And I just wanted to show you that to illustrate uh, the big changes. So this is not on the shelf, but uh, close to the shelf break. And you see here, this is the Amundsen Sea, and that's the Ross over there. And in, if you look at temperature, you see this uh, circumpolar deep water and uh, freshwater uh, s- surface water layer that is uh, purple is close to freezing temperature. And as you move further west into the Ross Sea, you see the deepening of the, fresh, of the surface water layer. And also you see that the circumpolar deep water becomes colder and colder. Then, when we are in the Rossi, there is uh, virtually nothing left of the circumpolar deep water and salinity is uh, it's salty this is quite salty this circumpolar deep water, and then there is um, uh, a minimum here, and then the salinity increases again, but this um, water is salty because of sea ice formation. so here it's cold and salty, and here it's warm and salty. and the difference between these two areas can only be understood if we understand why, uh, what, what controls the cross shelf transports and uh, what controls the water mass modification on the shelf. And uh, there are some um, uh, various hypotheses, And I think at the moment it's put forward that there is one big reason is that you have m- much colder uh, conditions here in the Sea, more sea ice formation. It could also be that uh, the shelf is wider here, so you have more area for this cooling to act on, uh, more net cooling since you have a larger area, or that the warm water cannot, uh, is mixed up into the water column during the path since you have a wider shelf. But it's clear that the differences are substantial. So, mechanisms for cross-shelf flow uh, of warm water. So, there are two things going on at the shelf. We have dense water that wants to flow off the shelf and warm water that wants to come on to the shelf. And they are both deep. And then, of course, we have surface water also. But um, I think uh, the surface water is not as blocked by the... Uh, continental shelf break as the deeper water masses. There's always wind and stuff that can push surface water around and it has a coast <coughs> to lean against. It, so it's, um, uh, and it's much harder also to measure it. So I'm here on um, the deep flows. Uh, so um, by looking at models and some of the scattered observations that exist. Uh, M- Mike Diemann and John Klink, they have done a lot of wor- uh, this work in, in the past years, and Moffat. Uh, so they, they sort of distinguish between two types of uh, exchange. You have uh, the upper circumpolar di water, which is the, the one furthest to the surface water mass, and this is really um, um, intermediate water mass. so this, uh, when, you, when you have the upper circumpolar di water crossing the shelf. It's uh, floating in the water column. It's not lying on the bottom. Uh, and that uh, seems to be controlled mostly by eddies. And the eddies are uh, driven by shear, velocity shear, that the velocity is faster here than here. Then you create eddies. Um, it's not clear if you need what upholds this shear that feeds the eddies. Um, yeah, and then you have um, the lower circumpolar deep water, which is deep, deeper and denser. And when it enters onto the shelf break, it lies on the bottom. It often enters in uh, deep troughs that cut uh, the shelf. Um, and these uh, transports like this, at least in the areas where there are observations of it, they show that it's more or less constant, this flow. It appears to be buoyancy driven. Once it's on the shelf, it's a uh, sort of downhill and it's not uh, fluctuating very much. Uh, but it's not clear. It needs to be externally forced in order to get up onto this hump here. This water originates quite far down in the water column. So something needs to put it up there and then it can flow in. Uh, so they are very different, those two. Yeah, this. Uh, yellow light. Uh, um. Yeah, so if we focus on two mechanisms that can move water up onto the, d- move the dense water onto the shelf. First out is Ekman dynamics. If you have um, current outside the shelf that uh, moves along the shelf break that then you set up something called Ekman transport in the bottom boundary layer, which is um, uh, directed to the right of the flow in the southern hemisphere. So if you have an eastward current moving um, I- along the Antarctic continental slope, then you would actually incite Ekman transport up the hill. So that could do the trick. And there are some examples uh, of this. This is from the Amundsen Sea. So this is a long slope velocity and the white lines are density. So here you you see a strong flow from the surface down to the bottom Uh, and accompanied with it, you see that these white lines slope uphill. So this flow has apparently pushed, this is the Ekman layer here. So this flow has managed to push dense water up the slope. And then it can continue to flow down to the ice shelf cavities. Uh, and you can see this also in a recent model study. So these uh, maps are correlations between. Uh, she picked a spot here where she looked at the velocity towards the ice shelves and looked at the correlation between that spot and all the other spots on this map. And then you could see that uh, there is a strong band, a band here of strong correlation between this spot and a long shelf velocity. So this is at 450 meters depth, and this is at the surface. So it's the strongest connection when you're at intermediate or deep. Not so much. The, the surface is sort of coupled uh, free from this a little bit. Whoops, one minute. Uh, so. If this is true, uh, in that case, what is the rule? I, I, if that is true, that means that if you have a current, the ACC or filaments of it or whatever, it moves like this around Antarctica. And in places, it's quite close to the continental slope. Uh, and, but in some regions, it's very far from the continental slope, like the Ross Sea and the Weddell Sea. Uh, and somewhere um, they sort of come, th- th- if, the, if the previous view is true, that means that the paths of the ACC or the currents along the slope we, we are very important for the determining the melting of the glaciers in Antarctica. Um, and, and these gyres, what are the role of them? Can they prevent the fact that you have a gyre hill? Can that prevent warm water? in all to flood the continental shelf. Or are these gyres in fact uh, artifact, a result of the fact that you don't have any warm water flooding the shelf? No, a very small cross shelf exchange so you build up a pressure gradient which would create these gyres. Uh, and how persistent are they? We need more observations of these uh, circulation paths. Seven seconds, yeah. Uh, So, you want
0: to just finish up with one last slide then? Yeah. We'll have
1: some discussion. Yeah. I think I want to finish up with the outstanding questions. Is that. And we can talk more about SUSE. So. Uh, some uh, outstanding questions at least uh, focusing on the cross shelf flow is why are continental shelves some continental shelves flooded while others only have modified and cold versions of cdw on the shelf we don't know the answer to that yet there are um, theories circulating and different hypotheses but there is no consensus Uh, and we uh, oh, we don't know. And the part of the reason is that we don't know what forces the warm water onto the shelf. What the mechanisms? Is it wind? Is it the a c c Is it uh, something else altogether? And how is the big um, the difference between the eddy driven and the buoyancy driven flows? We don't o- also, we don't know how a um, large part of the heat it's responsible for. Uh, and we cannot predict. Because of this, we cannot predict the melt rate the glacier floating glaciers which is uh, one of the biggest uncertainties in the IPCC at the moment um, and um, also we don't know how temperature melt rate, grounding line location changes with climate if we move into warmer climate we really don't know what would happen with the ice shelves because of all these other uncertainties. Mm?
0: Thanks very much Anna.